Welcome to Out of the Ether, Episode 6. I am Tim Brick, and still your host for this amazing podcast. Uh, and this week is actually part two of uh, my interview with Andrew Johnson. Uh, if you didn't listen to the last episode, I, I would suggest you go back and do that one uh, before you do this one, but you don't have to. In this episode, uh, we're going to continue to listen to some of the compositions uh, Andy's created over the years and uh, particularly get a little bit more into some John Legend stories. <laughs> he touched on the first episode. We're going to get a little more specific uh, and talk about some other people in the industry and uh, a lot more about Andy's process and how he creates uh, music for TV, movies, and commercials. So we'll be right back in a moment with part two of our interview with Andrew Johnson. So now, you know, we're talking about performance and particularly with the Iowa State Fair. I think that's interesting. I guess I just assumed you were the best piano player. Um, sounds like you were definitely the best performer and you have a penchant for performance. So that being said, if you got a, an opportunity to go on tour, major tour, would you do it? I know you, you have a family, but let's just, let's just assume for a second your wife says, okay. I, I think it'd be fun. <clears throat> I, I, I don't think that there's a demand for what I do, but my parents live in Leadville, Colorado, and they have an opera house. And what some of the more, some of the most memorable piano performances I've ever done were completely improvised two-hour concerts. And I did uh, more than one in Leadville. I would, I had nothing prepared. The jit, like you, you could come up and pick three notes out of a, out of a hat, okay. you know, C, F sharp, A flat, whatever. And then you give me a tempo and you give me a style and I have to turn it into a piece in so, that style. So when using you say those give me a tempo, people just clap it out? Yeah. Or, it, okay. Well, or, there were, it was like fast, medium, slow. Because oh, okay. okay. they weren't going to know like Allegro or something. All right. But the idea was that it, it wasn't controlled by me. And, or, or you pick a key and I just like, you know, you, you just point oh. to something, you say G minor and like, okay, so in G minor, I have to start with a, a you know, a B natural, like, oh, that's, that's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, how do I do that? That was just thrilling for me because there was so much adrenaline and it was a, it was a packed auditorium and I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I remember my dad. Are you the only dad, person on stage doing that? Is there a band yeah, around it was, here? It's just no, just me. And okay. my dad didn't even come to the first performance because he was so nervous. <laughs> He's just like, I, I can't, I can't see this happen. Um, but I felt kind of the same way of just like, this could be the worst thing that I've ever done. But also once it was done, yeah, it was so much more fulfilling than just, you know, playing a, a classical piece that I, if I were to do that, like, I know that I can play it. I'm not going to go on stage until it's pretty much mastered. Right. Um, and so then the question is, am I going to make a mistake or not? But that's it. Whereas improvise, like I have no idea what's going to happen. Like, are you going to ask me to play robot blues in C sharp minor? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? And I have to do it and I have to make it sound good. So, so could you, uh, in a performance like that, could you tell the musicians in the group who were trying to stump you? There was one, um, I, and I vividly remember it is just kind of giving him the hairy eyeball um, <laughs> where, yeah, he would do the type of thing where he would pick the tritone or something 
And it was kind of a fun challenge, but I remember just thinking like, oh, you're going to have to do better than that, buddy. Like, <laughs> Bring your A game. If yeah. you think you're going to throw me, like we're just going to turn it into a flat six to an applied dominant down to five, and then we're off to the races. But yeah. anyway. This is easy stuff. I was doing this when I was 12, back on my lime green piano. Well, I, well, let me ask you, this. What, if, what if a major artist came to you and said, hey, I've seen your, your videos, you're a phenomenal keyboard player, uh, like you to go on tour with me. Is that something you would do? I, I mean, who knows? I, I mean, I don't really think that's me. I'm like, I'm fine, but I'm not quite, I'm not really good enough to do something like that. But I, I would be interested. I, I mean, if, if, if you know someone. I, I was just going to say, put, by the way, I don't touch. know anybody, but uh, yeah, if, if some major artist reaches out to me this week, I will certainly put them in contact with you. No, I just, it's it's interesting. I know, uh, and we've had opportunity to talk in the past. I think one time we were talking, you said, oh, I'm, I need to go practice a little bit. I've got a performance and I'm really excited because I get to actually go out and play piano. So I guess in the back of my mind, I, and then hearing you tonight talking about the Iowa State Fair and now up in Leadville. I mean, you definitely, and you have that really engaging personality. I just completely see you uh, being a performer. And I know that how you make your living is not doing that. It's more all by yourself in a room, keyboard, computers, and and, and go to work. Uh, speaking of keyboards and computers, you sent me three different tracks. The first one, um, and I was going to, this is what I was mentioning earlier. I'm so used to your punny, funny uh, names. And then when I was reading these and the tracks you sent over, I thought, mm, I wonder if Andy has some very specific naming convention when he's doing things for clients. First one's Allen65AJ1. I'm assuming AJ is Andrew Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, what, but it's just out of curiosity, what's the naming convention? Because a couple of them kind of follow the same pattern. So it, uh, that one was for an ad. And the way that that one worked is you had to write Alan 65, 65 seconds and then your initials because there were dozens of people applying for this job. Mm. And so it, you just had to send them all in with, with that convention. But yeah, that, that's the story there is Alan is the name of the company. 65 is the length of the spot. Um, and then AJ are just my initials. So well, let's listen to the Alan 65 AJ one. Do you want to say anything about before we listen? Or do you want to talk about afterwards? So let's see. The the only thing I would say is I, I was solicited by an ad agency to write this 65-second spot. They sent a video, and here was the creative brief. It just said, um, without being addy or corporate, we want an emotional track that scores the story. We want acoustic instruments rather than electric sounds. Tug at our heartstrings in a happy, inspirational way, but don't make us cry. The animation at the beginning has a childlike whimsy. That might be something to think about. Don't let the instrumentation get too big or pull away from the voiceover. And you might want to add a Mexican element, but it's not mandatory. So <laughs> with, with that framework, okay. this is what I came up with. Well, let's listen to it.
I would say um, on a scale of one to ten, you at least a nine as far as capturing their dictate to you. How'd you feel about it? I was sure that I was going to get it. Um, and like when you see it against picture, it just it seemed perfect. It's like when the camera would move up, like the score swelled and. And I was just like, oh, this is a sure thing. Yeah. And then not only did I not get it, which can totally happen. I mean, that happens most of the time. But the dagger in the heart was then I heard the one that they went with. And it was nothing like that. It was an electric guitar, the most corporate sounding. And I'm just like, wait, what was this whole without being Abby or corporate? (laughs) I mean, it was just and it was just this repeating 15 second loop. And it was like, that's fine, but your whole thing is follow the the animation and give it a childlike whimsy. So the lesson that I've learned probably 12 times over is whenever an ad agency says, we don't want it to sound like an ad, they want it to sound like an ad. Yeah. Um, like I did an Amazon thing where they're saying, we want this to sound like Christmas, but nothing like you've ever heard before. It's just shock us. Do, you know, the opposite of a Target ad. So I it was basically like nightmare before Christmas and I was all these crazy things and it was just like, okay, yeah, maybe. And we weren't getting anywhere. And so finally I just went with the like bells and chimes, like ding, 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 and sleigh bells, <laughs> Celeste and like children's choir. And they come back like, it's perfect. And it's like, <laughs> this is, if I was South Park and I was mocking a Target ad, yeah. this is what I would write. But that's the that's the way to do corporate stuff. Yeah, well, it sounds like your clients uh, a lot of times don't really know what they want. They think they know, but they really don't. You probably know better than they do. But having said that, obviously you get, is that really common? Like what the description you got for the Allen piece, the 65 second, is that standard? You'll get this long description of this is what we want, don't want, this is what it should feel like. And then... Are you finding uh, as your career goes forward and you have those experiences that you kind of you read it, but you kind of ignore it and give them what you think they want? Um, yeah, it's they usually send you something like that, but it's oftentimes much longer. And what I've learned in this, this is a bad example because it didn't work. But normally you do pay attention to the emotion that they ask for. Sure. But you don't pay any attention to the instruments. That's the part that you can always ignore because if it captures the right emotion, they don't, they don't really care. They're not going to say, this is the most perfect thing I've ever heard, but I didn't want a Rhodes keyboard. That, <laughs> yeah. They're never going to do that. Right. Whereas when they say something specific about a, a, an instrument, the key is just figuring out what does that instrument normally do that doesn't do the emotion that they say they want. Right. And so that's why I was surprised I didn't get this ad. Because if you capture the emotion and the vibe, that's usually the way to do it. So like um, I did a commercial uh, a year or two ago where they came to me after going through like 50 library tracks, like existing pieces of music. Mm -hmm. And they basically just said, nothing we find works because the client wants something cool, hip and sophisticated. um, But it also needs to sound like modern and I listened and every piece they chose was jazz, which I get how you would do that from mm-hmm. that description. But then I just thought, what if I write like a, a Mozart string piece, but I put a hip hop beatboxer behind it? Okay. 
So you get like a and it's like and all of a sudden they loved it and it was because it captured the emotion mm-hmm. of it's sophisticated but it's also cool it's modern it's hip that's a case where they specifically said we don't want piano we don't want strings and they didn't want that because they'd been listening to jazz right and it didn't work for them but once you put it in a classical context right they liked it so do you have uh go-to keys uh in other words somebody says i want something happy and you think oh it's going to be an a or whatever uh, i want something sad it's going to be d minor or whatever uh no it's just it, it's probably just whatever note i press first <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll just start playing and whatever key I play it in, unless there's like a, an instrument range that matters. Right. It's it, like, yeah, you're the lucky winner. That's what I hit today. So let's listen to the, the second piece that you sent me. It's called Let's Run. And I believe that was for a sports, was a radio show, podcast, TV show? Yeah, it's for a, a, a running, it's, it's like the number one running website in the country. And it's one of the few things that I listen to the podcast because I used to run okay. um, every week. And I, I, I did this totally for free. I just, they didn't have music. I felt that they needed it. So I asked them if they wanted a theme. They said yes. And I ended up writing them another theme that they also use, which is a standalone 25-second theme. But then the idea was that this will play every time they introduce that week's episode, which is usually about... This week, we had five records broken. Three American records went down. The world record was challenged. We're going to cover that and more in our guest. And like, they would be all excited, but it was just boring. So I wrote this music underneath. And my inspiration was that Chicago Bulls, uh, the Alan Parsons series. And I thought, how could I channel that into something that would sound like running? So I was imagining, obviously, a stopwatch Mm -hmm. of... And then just kind of a sports feel where it's exciting, but it's not like basketball. It's There aren't like one-second plays. It's, you know, guys running marathons and stuff. So it's more of a, a grind and a drive. And, and so I wanted it to be a slower build, but still feel that sports exciting feel. So that was the goal. Well, you just answered one of my questions about the piece, which was why the clock ticking on the intro and the outro. So now I get it. So running, you know, it's all about the time. It, absolutely. Uh, well, let's listen to the, so what, let's run theme song. What, what do you call it? Uh, it's the let's run podcast main theme. All right. Let's listen to the let's run podcast main theme.
Well, I think you, you you did exactly what you said you were trying to do with that piece. One one thing I want to ask you is how do you create that sense of urgency? Because that song definitely has a sense of urgency. It kind of gets me going when I listen to it. Are there specific techniques, things that you do to try and create that feeling? Um, you know, energy is probably the first thing that I think about when scoring. And that comes down to tempo. You figure out what is the energy of the piece and getting the tempo right and then figuring out whether it's eighths or sixteenths. And it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be incessant, but if you kind of feel that energy, then you can do a slow build like the one that we just played, mm-hmm. where you make the chords long and slow, but you keep the but then if the chord changes really slowly, it gives you this this feeling of like a slow rise, or in this case, I was thinking of like marathon runners, uh, as opposed to having the melody also be really energetic, mm-hmm. which is just a completely different vibe. But right. yeah, it's finding the tempo and then figuring out what is the beat within that tempo that gives the appropriate energy. So when you're composing, do you start with percussion or, or start with just whatever strikes you to start with? Uh, tempo is probably the first thing that I'm trying to figure out. Mm-hmm is yeah is this 80 is it 100 is it 130 is it 150 whatever once i capture that then i'm i'm half half of the way there but specifically for a film scoring like a scene right if the energy is wrong it doesn't matter how great your composition is it's not going to quite fit Mm -hmm. it's going to feel a little out of place so figuring out the tempo, particularly with film scoring, because it also needs to shift at like exact moments. And so sometimes with a tempo, you're like, well, if I choose this tempo, it's going to happen a second later, or I have to use like a, you know, a five, four bar or something. So mapping out the tempo and the beats is the first thing that I'll do. And then within that, you then figure out the vibe and the tone then the composition, and then finally the instruments. Okay, yeah. Well, it sounds, I mean, it's it's really not that different than recording a rock song, you know? I might write it on the guitar, I might write it on the bass, I might write it on the keyboards, but when it comes time to record it, it's the same thing. You know, first thing you do is, all right, what's this tempo? You know, what have I been playing it at? And does that still feel right? And should it be faster? Should it be slower? Um, matter of fact, um, okay, what was that movie with Tom Hanks? That Thing You Do? You ever see that movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, I know this scene that you're talking about. Yeah, where the guy writes this beautiful ballad, and then the drummer comes in and just arbitrarily decides it should be 140 and not 80. And next thing you know, they have a, a huge smash hit. But that's not uncommon. Um, taking songs, I've been in a lot of bands where people come in, they've got this beautiful song, and we're like, yeah, but if it's a little faster, or they come in with something that's just screaming, you're like, but if we slowed it down. So you're absolutely correct. I mean, that's the first thing you do. But I know for me, it's it's always figuring out what the drums are and kind of laying those in as far as recording it that's not the first thing i do when i'm writing a song that's the first thing i do when i record a song which you know to speaks to what you're talking about the tempo you know figure out the tempo and then i usually want to have them to go back and edit drums quite a bit later before it's final but um that's that's kind of my first step there and it sounds like for you it's the same thing um so there's a third piece you sent me waa special forces so what was that written for um that's stands for war and audio and again this titling is uh, you have to do it in their format. Okay. And so this is an album for special forces, military operations. The thinking is a little bit different on this because since it's for licensing, I don't want it to ever be so specific 
that it can't be used by someone else because I also want them to be able to license it. So this is technically for special forces, you know, military operations in whatever that makes you think of. But as I'm writing it, I want to make sure could a part of this work for a football game? Could it work for WWF wrestling? Could it work for, you know, you'd be amazed by like shark week, national geographic history channel. Like the music they use is so over the top that it'll just be like, you know, Eisenhower had four days to get the paper signed. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's just about like a guy getting a peace treaty signed, but like, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And so thinking through like, will this fit the brief that the client wants so that I make the album? And then once it does, is this something that lots of other people could potentially use mm-hmm. that where the client's going to hear it and not think that there's any ulterior purpose for it, but could someone with an ulterior purpose also use it? And so that was the goal here. Um, in something like this, I think I, I believe I wrote it all on drums and strings first. Okay. Um, so the whole thing was just a string pass with like orchestra percussion that I laid in and then the guitars I had recorded afterwards and then later I realized I liked the guitars way more than the strings. So I pulled the strings way back and they're still there, right. but they're not the instrument. Whereas it was entirely string the first time. And that was just one where uh, I have kind of a barter system with a guitarist in London where he can't really orchestrate and uh-huh. I can't play guitar. So I orchestrate his strings for free just every now and then. Right. And then every now and then to pay me back, I just say, and here's a track. I don't give him any feedback. I just say, here it is. And he just does whatever, whatever he does, I accept. Yeah. And he's that way with strings. He just says like, Hey mate, here's a a guitar rock song. I need your magic. And I just do whatever I do. And, and so I would say every three months, you know, he sends me something and then I send him something or, or I remember that he owes me. And we go back and forth. Yeah. Um, so that's the story with this one. All right. Well, let's listen to WAA Special Forces.
So yeah, listen to that piece, and you already uh, basically answered the two questions I had when I listened to it earlier, and I just hear it again. One, the strings that are in there, because there's definitely still strings. Uh, to me, make the piece or make pieces in general, but particularly this one, feel kind of cinematic and large, and I feel like I'm like helicopters flying over a ridge or something of that effect. You know, our planes flying in through a valley. I get that feeling about it, and but to me, that comes from the strings. Uh, yeah, they're they're huge for giving that orchestral quality that d- that does feel cinematic to most people. Um, I would say, ironically, among film composers, the thing is to try and not use strings because it's, I don't want to say it's cliche, but it's yeah. so common that the, the clever thing to do is to not use any strings. But then every time that you do use them, the normal people that don't like spend their lives in film composing love it. And so you're just like, they work, they're yeah. effective. So th- I use them a lot. And when you need something like strings, like you're either going to use synths that, that emulate that feel, or you're going to use strings. And the problem is unless you're a really good synth programmer, it just feels a little cheap. Yeah. It feels like you're someone with GarageBand that just couldn't do (laughs) strings. Um, and so I just always err on the side of sounding expensive, which is probably strings. Okay. Um, by the way, GarageBand is an excellent program. We love Apple. Um, so we started off, I asked you who the biggest asshole was that you ever worked with. It got a very shocking answer. So now I was flipped the other way, uh, as we're coming to the end here, who, some of your favorite people that you've worked with, man, um, that one's tougher to answer because a lot of the people I've been most impressed with, I just only met very briefly. Okay. And so it's, it's a little tougher to judge, but what I am always struck by is how little kindness it takes from somebody who's established and that I look up to right. how little kindness they have to show me for me to really remember it. Yeah. Um, you know, even as, as simple as someone saying, you know, that was a hell of a piece. And it's like, yeah, maybe the guy says that to everyone, but I, yeah. I remember that stuff 10 years later, the guy who scored the X files commented on a piece of mine in New York and, I just, I, again, I was struck by just how he went out of his way to say like, that was really a hell of a composition. And then I moved to LA and I started working on the show American Horror Story. And the guy that I was working for, his name was Jimmy. He just goes, you know, when I really knew I made it was after this aired and he ended up getting nominated for an Emmy and like other people agreed, but he was very insecure for a little bit. And he's like, and this guy from New York calls me up out of the blue. I'd never talked to him. And he goes, I've never heard a horror score like that. And it was the exact same guy, uh, <laughs> Mark Snow, who did okay. X-Files. And I just thought, that's just the kind of guy he is. And again, I interact with him for like four days and he made one comment. The counter to John Legend at the Democratic Convention uh-huh. was Will I Am, the artist from the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. He was also there. And it was like a case study in how one person can be a total diva and like ask me to buy him deodorant and stuff, which is a (laughs) a literal task I had to do. Was that part of the job description? Yeah, it was. uh, The exact story was he he goes, oh, you're a piano player. I was like, yeah. He goes, play me something. This is John Legend. Yeah. And I said, sure. So I sat down and I started playing exactly what he had been playing to try and impress him. I just wanted him to be like, oh, hey, you can play it too. And within five seconds, he just hit the power button on the keyboard and turned it off. And he goes, I need some deodorant. 
Um, I think that was his way of saying that you're better than him on the piano. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> or, or may, maybe <laughs> I was going over the top to really. Yeah. But my point was, I wanted yeah. him to think I was cool. Yeah, absolutely. And so, a moment like that was frustrating. Whereas Will, I am was just going out of his way to like, I love your hat. Like not to me, but to other people, like, I love your hat. Can I try on your hat? Let's take a selfie. Um, Oh, let's go jam. Where are we all going out for dinner? And just everybody loved him. And I did like, that was somebody who sort of enjoyed being the celebrity that everyone wanted a picture with. Yeah. And he just like milked it, but we all loved it. And then there was the other hand of like, Oh, I'm a celebrity. And therefore I'm just going to like order people around and, ask you to get 22 luggage bags out of my car and then not open any of them uh and stuff like that which was not will i am so so what kind of deodorant does john legend use well i don't know but i got him lady speed stick um, <laughs> true story you're not passive aggressive at all i love that uh, i got lady speed stick and i handed it off and walked away but um <laughs> so here you go knock yourself out guy one more question for you, um, and like I said, I know we're—I've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. Your family's not—they're uh, not musicians. Uh, matter of fact, I think they're professionals. And you had mentioned earlier, it sounded like your mom was supportive, at least enough to go. Oh, I think maybe he wants to play piano. We'll give him some lessons. But overall, how how were your parents with you deciding to make a career out of music? Were they supportive of that? Any tense family discussions around dinner that you know you really should go get a job that'll you know more uh, secure no it wasn't really a thing um it was they were very supportive when i was playing piano um you know my mom would you know sit and listen all the time in many times it was probably not very good i don't know like my dad would the the tv he liked to watch was in the same room as the piano and he just kind (laughs) of So I don't know how he did it, but I would play the same piece over and over and over. And I never heard a complaint and they'd come to my recitals. So like during the learning process, it right. was very supportive. And then I don't remember it being an issue. I think it, the assumption is just sort of like do whatever you're going to do, but just, you know, if, if it works or it doesn't, that's on you. I think that was always the implicit assumption that was never really talked about. Okay. Um, but yeah, there were certainly no arguments, but I, I also would have never occurred to me to hit them up for money if it didn't work out either. So right. I think they, they somehow uh, taught me that lesson too. Well, you probably softened the blow by getting a degree from Yale, I'm going to imagine. I know um, my family was never supportive at all of music, never wanted to come see me play. So I almost got the feeling... Um, well, more than a feeling. I mean, we've talked about it later in life, but, uh, from my, from my dad, it's like, well, I didn't want to show support cause I didn't want to encourage you cause that's a hard way to make a living. By the way, I have wonderful parents, not trying to throw them under the bus at all, but, uh, I just know when it comes to, and I've talked to people that are, uh, in other creative professions and few, if any of them got support from their families around that. Because it is very hard to make a living, and you've been very successful. At what point did you realize, hey, I, I think I can actually pay the rent and buy a house in L.A. and do all these things making music? <laughs> uh, I haven't quite figured that out. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, it's uh, – it took a little bit. I mean, because knowing that it, it is so difficult to sustain, it, it's not – 
that difficult to get one or two high paying jobs and think that you're awesome. Right. But it is very difficult to sustain a living and to realize how long you have to keep doing that without getting fired and without, you know, having a dry spell. Uh, I have not gotten past that at all. In fact, uh, my wife will joke that every single month I say, if I get a good royalty statement, then I'm going to do, I'm going to buy at, you know, I'm going to buy a new microphone or I'm going to do this yeah. thing. And then I get the good royalty statement and I just say, well, <laughs> but this could be the last one I ever get. Let's, yeah. let's wait another month. And so that's a, a source of constant anxiety is things can go really well, but I've also heard of or, or tangent, tangentially known people where it seemed great. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, it all just kind of collapsed. Yeah. And so my great nightmare, especially during the age of COVID has been when I get that first bad data point, am I, is that the, a blip or is it the beginning of the end? And right. uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I just, I always think it's right around the corner. <laughs> well, well, hopefully after this podcast airs, uh, you don't need John Legend to make any money. <laughs> yeah, no, this, I, I'm counting on this as my springboard. <laughs> that, well, definitely with our, our, our thousands and thousands of listeners here. So this would definitely launch your career. Um, maybe we'll be up to 40 million uh, views on YouTube for you. Well, Andy, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was great. <laughs>